Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent the son as the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he is in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him. Because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his neighbor, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Our gracious Father, Open up our hearts to receive this word today that your love will abound richly in our hearts and that we would put on bowels of mercy and that we would love one another. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would fill us and empower the preaching and your word and send it forth right into our hearts to expand and stretch us further there that we might be more abounding in the good works that you have foreordained, more faithful to the calling that you have given, and more loving to our God and to our neighbor as an expression of our great gratitude and thanksgiving for all that you have given. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In light of the rapidly changing environment in the world of this past week, The Lord led me to this particular passage. These are uncertain times. In fact, these are unprecedented times, at least in my life. Not only do we find ourselves very vulnerable, we find that the world is realizing that it is vulnerable and weak. As Christians, we we know the script. If you've been in this ministry for any length of time, you know the script. God is sovereign, right? He's in control. We should not fear but trust Him. We know all the facts, and the facts do indeed help. But there is a sense underneath it all that Christians are still very fearful. And the facts that I know don't seem to be helping sometimes and consistently deep, deep down in my heart of hearts. That's often what I'm hearing, or at least uh, picking up from one thing to another. I can't tell you how many times that I've read this past week and heard from Christians who said, I'm not fearful, but I want to act in wisdom. And yet underneath it, I'm hearing something that perhaps there is a bit more fear than then we recognize. I heard this script in many variations, but I wonder deep, deep down, is that true? I'm sure it is to some degree or another. It has to be for all of Christians, because if we are truly a Christian, then God abides in us through the Spirit, and this love is certainly something that is true, and it does dispel a fear But we are prone to fear, are we not? We've lived a fairly soft life. My generation has not known great trial and difficulty on the soil of this continent. I've not known war personally. I've hardly met those who have been 
personally involved in war. It's a, a, a faint memory now in a distant time when my uncle served in Vietnam. We've not known a whole lot of trial. Oh, the stock market of 2008 when it crashed. But it was nothing like what my parents and grandparents lived through in the 30s. We've not known food rationing or, or lines that are out um, in where the cities are trying to keep people alive just in the bare essentials of life. We have lived very lavishly and, and very prosperously and, and very materially and, and very full. And we are very, very rich. And we complain at the slightest little bit of inconvenience. And the fortitude in our spirit has, has been somewhat diminished by the pleasures and the, the personal pursuit of peace and affluence and luxury and, and the things that will bring life to a, a better light. And yet we find that when we get that which we thought would be something that would make us happier, it just brings further disappointment. And yet we go on chasing the things that really don't matter. And now coming close to home is something that hopefully will wake us up. Folks, this is a good thing if we respond to it in the biblical fashion. Oh, it's not good that people are getting sick. It's not good that hospitals are being overrun. That's not what I mean. But you know, behind it all is a great God who is good and loving. And behind it all is a God that has decreed this. And behind it all is a God that reveals himself to you and wants you to wake up. And he wants this world to see that there is something greater. Someone greater and someone who just loves this world to death. Just loves this world. But fear is a great enemy of ours. We see it in the news. We've read about it. We've seen it. We've seen reactions and overreactions. And we, we see fear governing the spirits of people in such a way that... When you think about what's going on today and the amount of reaction to it, you wonder where's the fortitude? Where's the faith? Where's the spiritual strength that should be expected of us, God's people, the church? The Psalms have numerous references to fear. In the 150 Psalms, there are 76 references to fear. At least 76. And the psalmist says in Psalm 64, which I thought was notable when I read this not long ago, preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Did you catch that? Not preserve my life from the enemy... Preserve my life from the fear of the enemy. I'm hoping that I can provide some help with God's word and address some of these deep down seeds of doubt this morning that we all struggle with. Some of the fears that we are constantly prone to and when we live apart from the grace of God and, and we drift from Him, Perhaps maybe when we've been too dependent on ourselves, our jobs and our, our health, our money and all of those things, that when things of life are going well and our trust and our dependence upon Him begins to not be as sincere and, and quite uh, as deep as it really should be when we're on the mountaintop, we begin to, to live in such a way that we become less grateful and our thanksgiving is not as sincere. And our praise is less glorious. And, and then when something comes up, it's because we're unprepared in spirit. 
that fears can easily grip us. And this is where the Apostle Paul knows the darkened forces that wage against us and that tempt us in these areas and that causes things to seem like the whole world is crashing down. And he writes to the Ephesians, now, do, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And he goes on to talk about the armor of God and he says, now be watchful and pray that you might stand in the evil day. In other words, there's a day that will coming that will challenge your spiritual fortitude. You know not when it's going to come, but you need to be prepared for it. And the only way you can prepare for it is having been living in a daily abiding in Christ and putting on prayer and loving Him with your heart. And then in that day, you will stand tall and stand fast. So how are we to respond in times like these? Well, the answer is really not simple. I mean, it is, but it's not. You know what I mean. Ultimately, it is a response of love. A response of love. Love is mentioned 26 times in these, this very short passage. But there are other words that are associated that if you were to take and highlight words that continue to repeat over and over, you'll find things like to know, to abide, perfect, seen, fear. Know is mentioned four times. Abiding mentioned five. Perfect, at least three. And seen, four. Fear, four. So these are very associative words and they're creating kind of a matrix and a dot outline that if we could take and understand how those dots connect. I want to propose at least three things this morning as we consider this passage before us. We know by loving. Second thing I want us to see is we see by loving. And the third thing I want us to consider is we are perfected by loving. And then there's an application. There are several applications, but then the result of that is going to be a fear that begins to be displaced by this love. Let's consider verses 7 through 11 here. And I want to challenge you in a way, perhaps maybe you've not thought about it before. And we know by loving. How do we know what we know? This is an epistemology. And epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do we know what we know? And there's an epistemology of love given to us in verses 7 and 8. Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. We live in a day in the western part of the world, and particularly in a time that the entire train of thought, the whole atmosphere and the way that we think and process cognitively has been greatly influenced by the age of reason, the time of the Enlightenment. Enlightenment is the time when men back in the 17th, 16th, uh, 17th century primarily began to turn almost exclusively to reason, which brought man to the center and the focus of life. It was a big turn from previous times. I mean, this was a revolutionary, momentary kind of turn where beforehand, through the Middle Ages, God was at the focus. He was at the center. Even for non-Christians, there was a certain ballast and and certain radiance of God that permeated science and history and the, the way that people thought about life and the way that the Christian church had thought about God rippled out into the way that even unbelievers thought about how to think and process. And all that turned in a major way 
from the previous centuries in the time of the Age of Enlightenment. The quest for knowledge then turned to an accumulation of facts. And now we have the love of knowledge, the philosophies that then became so dominant in the Western world. Before that time, there was a natural theology that was very uh, permeated in terms of, of, of our society. Natural theology where we can look out and see what God has created and, and look and study providence and history. And we see God behind it and God at the center of it. And, and now, God has now been pushed to the margins by the deists of the 17th and 18th century and pushed out altogether by the agnostic atheist. And we just happen to be living now more in the full orbed fruit of those kinds of thinking. And that kind of thinking has influenced the way that we think, even in the church, from pulpits. Francis Bacon would Say knowledge is power. And we know that the way of the world, we know the way of the world and how things are going and we want to impose that upon you, goes the enlightened kind of thinking. It's all about figuring things out, how things work, but now with God out of the picture. Influenced by the men of like Francis Bacon and John Locke and Thomas Paine, even Thomas Jefferson and David Hume and all of these men that have now have thoughts and ideas that have brought forth consequences in our day. That if it cannot be explained rationally, then it must be marginalized or annulled or possibly untrue. This was a time of great compartmentalization when we began to take and compartmentalize out certain things and we put math over here and we put art over here and we put music over here and we began to distort and take out and take away from the fabric of the tapestry that God has always been meant to keep together to show forth the glory and now we begin segregating out. We even now have Old Testament department in seminaries and New Testament department in seminaries, almost as though the hermeneutic that has so permeated our day has come forth in the way that we liturgize, the way we teach people how to be good pastors. The scripture doesn't know this. Knowing is not merely by understanding facts. It's not by a collection of data. Well, do you know such and such? The first thing we do is we pull out our device and we Google and we say, ah, you're wrong. You've got the wrong fact. I know. And then we think we know. But that's not how life works. That's not what makes the world go round. And that's not how the scripture has revealed to us that we even know God. And we don't know how his world works that way. Love is the key to knowing God's world. There is a hermeneutic of love that the Bible reveals to us that we know by love. Remember when Paul was addressing the Corinthians and they were very schismatic. And they had problems and he begins addressing these problems right from the get-go. Well, some... Follow after Apollos, some after Peter, some after Paul, some after Jesus. Some, the Jews, want to seek a sign. 
And the Gentiles want wisdom. But he says, but I want to know of you. The cross. And Jesus crucified. It's this pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of the sign, pursuit of this individualistic self that caused so many problems in the church of Corinth. As he's began to teaching them, and in the first epistle, he comes to chapter um, 12, 13, and 14. Actually, it begins in chapter 11, where he begins addressing corporate worship. You know the, you know the outline First part of chapter 11, he's addressing women with head coverings proper for the adornment in the corporate worship setting as they come in that even the angels are looking and beholding the manifold wisdom of God as they watch the church at worship. Second part of that chapter then goes into the Lord's Supper and and when they come together in the corporate worship, they're not coming together to, to truly have communion because of the abuse that was going on in terms of the disunity of the body. And so God brought judgment, and he's explaining the very things to them. But then chapter 12 gets into the, the, the thing about the Spirit's gifts, and they wanted this. They wanted the more honorable gifts, and everybody wanted this over here, and, and nobody wanted the more less honorable. And he had to say, now look, It's really not up to you to determine where your gift is. It's the Spirit of God which has grafted you into His body through baptism and has endowed you with the gift. And it's according to His measure, according to His placement of where your gift is. Now you need to understand this. And then he goes to chapter 14 and he begins to address the problems there and their public public gatherings. And and yet right in between there, right smack in the middle of this, it almost seems like a a parenthesis or maybe he'd change gear is 1 Corinthians 13. Now, how are they to know how to behave in church? How are they to know God? How are they to know these things? And you have 1 Corinthians 13. And Paul says, you know, you, you might have all knowledge, the, the knowledge of, of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. You might have all of the knowledge of the Greek philosophers. You might be able to have so much faith that moves mountains into the sea. You might do such great works that you give your body to even be burned. But if you do not have love, what is any of that to me? God says. It is the chief of all virtues. One author says, Paul focuses on the love within Christian communities, the love that holds together the varied ministries of chapter 12, the love that prevents disorderly chaos of worship in chapter 14. But the poem in chapter 13 indicates what it means to know God's world, to know one another within God's world, to know God himself with a love that though awaiting fulfillment in the age to come, has already broken into the present world and time. And when we see how this love works, we recognize that it transcends the antithesis of modern thought. We find in verse 9 and 10 the manifestation of this love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, in that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the manifestation of love. The working of it out, the visible seeing of it. God sends His Son into the world to be a propitiation. What you see around us today 
in all of its trials that are going on in China and South Korea and particularly Italy is not God's hatred for the world. God loves this world. He loves his people in this world, but he loves this world. He did not erase it. He could have in the time of Noah. He could have burned it up a long time ago, but he loves this world. And that is why he did not just completely do away with it, but he has promised a new heaven and a new earth. And that which is broken through in the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ has now touched the entire world so that as Romans 8 says, the world groans, yet awaiting its glorious redemption. And that which is in the future of the new heavens and the new earth completely consummated is the glory light that shines back upon us here, even from the future. That as we live today, we live it in that light, knowing that the first fruits has already been accomplished and the harvest is certain to come. That's how you know what's going on in the world. That's how you know how things are to happen and what's going on. You have to know that God has a love for His creation here. And as He came to redeem mankind through the last Adam, Jesus Christ, bringing everything back under the headship of humanity, under this Lord Jesus Christ, that all of creation now comes and brings its praise. All of the things of the earth. I was noticing as we sang all creatures of our God and King. Did anybody catch when that was written? Anybody see? Who wrote it? St. Francis of Assisi. What was it? 12th century. He was considered, is considered the patron saint of creation or nature. He loved animals. He loved nature. And as he went about, he would reflect upon how God's good hand was in all of this earth. And as we sang that, I was reminded that we need to be reminded of that. As we now bring the praises of all of creation, because as God has given man dominion over all of the works of his hands, he's now restored that under Christ. And now we as his people, as we as the physical manifestation of Christ upon this earth as his body, now do the work of Christ here. And that's manifested in love. We know love because God loved us. He has shown us. Now He says, now go and show the world. Show your neighbor. And we know that God's love for His creation here because the ultimate gift and sacrifice of His Son to show it and to redeem it is the highest price that we call is giving one's life. And yet, here is Christ giving His life for this world. The application then comes very quickly in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. The way we learn more about God the way we learn more about the world he made, the way we make more sense out of the circumstances around us is going to be interpreted by love. I'm not a liberal, Jay. <laughs> but not only is it the way we know, it's the way we see. Verses 12 through 16. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love has been perfected in us. We see on the one hand, we cannot see. 
There's something that we cannot see with our eyes. On the one hand, we cannot see God. That's what verse 12 says. No one has seen God at any time. It goes on in verse 20 as he wraps up in the application of this. He says, now, how can you love your brother that you do see and you do not love, or how can you love God who you do not see and you do not love your brother that you do see? If you do not love your brother that you do see, you cannot love God that you do not see. And this is an application and we're heading toward this. But he says you can't see God. Not, not, not this way, not with these things, not that. You can't see God, not with our natural sight, but there is a way to see God, and there is a way to see the world, and there is a way to understand the reality around us, and that is seeing by loving. And that's what he's going to mention here in verses 12 through 16. Verse 14, he says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Well, we can't see, but now we see. And this is a seeing that only comes through God. And that's why the Spirit of God, which dwells in us through the abiding presence of God, gives us a different kind of eyesight, a spiritual eyesight, which is no less than our natural eyesight. It's just a different kind. This seeing is understanding of the world around us and God in it and among us here. It's a seeing that when we look out and we look at the headlines, we have a different way of seeing it. When we look out and see all of the things that are going on in the world, good, bad, and ugly, and we have a different way of seeing it. And this seeing comes from our understanding of God's love for this world and sending his son to die for it and to redeem it. See, we see through love. As one author says, so the love that believes the resurrection, like the love that responds to creation and science and history, is the love answering the creator's love in launching the new creation. It's a love that sees. Abraham saw a city whose maker and builder was God. Jesus said, Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. We now behold the Lord in glory, high and lifted up, and from glory to glory are changed into his likeness as we behold him. As we see. And the mutual abiding presence of God in us through His Spirit and us in God is evidence of our love for God. This is the love that gives us spiritual vision, spiritual insight, spiritual interpretation of everything that's going on around us. It is what makes sense of things that otherwise seem chaotic and driven by nonsensical things. But if you abide in God, and He abides in you, five times that's mentioned in this section, then you can see. His mutual abiding is this evidence of the mutual love that's expressed you did not love God first, He loved you, and because He loved you, you loved Him. The most astounding part of this whole passage, God is love. God is love. And He loved you, and now, because of that, you love Him. And all of this reciprocal work that God is communicating His own attributes in us and through us to do of His goodwill and pleasure to the glory of God. You do what you do and why you do and manifest it from a heart of love for God, for His glory. And if that becomes your vision and that becomes your knowledge, you then do things differently. You think differently. You act differently. Because you really are a different human. You are a new creation. 
You are part of the new heavens and the new earth. In Christ, you are a new creature. You have the image of God being restored in you with the promise and glory. It will be completely finished and glorified. You're a different kind of human because of this image of God being restored. A new creature in the resurrected Christ. So the more we know God, the more we understand him in this world that he loves. And the way to know God more is by loving him. And the expression of your love to God is worked out in loving your neighbor. Loving one another. See, we think... Because of the way that we process matters today and the influences of the past several hundred years, that is kind of the air we breathe, we think we can learn more about God by go sitting in conferences and seminars and learning the facts. And to some extent, that is true. But our objective is not to know more about God, but to know more of God. To know God more. That is your objective. This is why Bible studies can be misappropriated. If your Bible study is replacing the love of God and your neighbor because you want to learn more about God, that is a misapplication and will soon become an idol and may already be. It's not the knowledge content. It's the knowing. It's the same word. The Bible says in Adam knew his wife and she bore a son. Yeah, it's intimate, relational, covenantal knowledge. Now, that's certainly not to discount the study of theology and Bible study and learning the truth. No, 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 no. But sometimes we make that an end unto itself as opposed to a means to a higher end. Because really knowing God more is going to take place as you live it out in your community according to the truth. Yes. And by the truth, yes. And with the truth, yes. And we speak the truth in love, yes. But we're going to know God and as we live this out in covenant love with God and those around us. See, the love and the knowing here is very covenantal. That which took place in the age of reason took us back to the individual. It took us back to the focus of, of thought, of my reason. And if I can't think outside of my own reasoning, and I don't understand this or that mystery or this or whatever, I discount it. It's all right here. And it becomes about me. It becomes about self-love and self-focus and selfishness. And it's not anything new. The age of reason brought it to a head over and against the very centrality of the knowledge centered around its creator. But it is that which we have embraced in this world and that which is bringing forth fruit. But love is a covenantal thing. In fact, by its very implication, it demands someone to love. It demands an object to love. You can't love if it is not being expressed towards someone. 
So we know by loving and we see by loving, but we are also perfected by loving. Verses 17 through 21. And it tells us in this section, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. In verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. Perfect love casts out fear. The word perfect here does not mean flawless, absolutely without any flaws. It's not the idea. Perfect is the word telos, from which we get telos. It, that word telos means it has an end in mind. It has a, a focus of which it is headed. It has an objective for which it is going. It's something about its conclusion. Uh, it completes it. it. It brings it to its purposed end. It accomplishes it. So this is the kind of love. It's a love that is mature, that is coming to its end. It's fulfillment. It's accomplishment. It is that which casts out fear. Now fear here is given to us in the context of judgment. The greatest fear that anybody has, the greatest fear, is the fear of standing before an almighty holy, omnipotent God, for you give an account. That is the greatest fear. It's a fear of all fears. That is why God says, do not fear Him who has the power over your physical life, but fear Him to whom you must give an account for your life and your soul. Do not fear anything but God. See, this is the, the greatest of all fears. Whether man recognizes it or not, there's going to be a dreadful day when he has suppressed that and he has suppressed his creator and he's pushed the truth behind him. And all of a sudden, one day, he's going to stand before the almighty, omnipotent, holy God. And it'll be the most fearful thing for the rest of eternity. It's the fear of all fears. And yet arguing from the greatest to the lesser, if you can overcome the greatest of all fears, then certainly deep down in the heart of hearts, every other fear will be abased. abated. Have you ever felt guilty because you've done something wrong? Or perhaps you knew something to do that you should have done, but for the sake of expediency or because you were too busy about yourself or too much in a hurry, you did not do it. Now, what happens if right at that moment, as soon as that moment happens, within seconds of you making that decision, you are ushered right into the throne room of God, having to give an account for that and everything else in your life. The fear of feeling guilty is an element and a character of a fear. Boy, how would I be able to stand? What would I be able to say? Would I be able to, to stand? But there's an answer to this. For the greatest of all fear, and the answer is love. And this love is that which casts out this fear and this dread of judgment of God. And it is this really this love that will drive out all of the lesser fears, the fear of dying is, is not the greatest fear. It's the fear of dying and then the judgment. But if you can get over the fear of the judgment, then you can get over the fear of dying, the fear of getting sick, the fear of losing a lost loved one, and the great sadness that that would bring, the fear of a loss of a job and all of the implications of what that may mean. If you can get the victory over your greatest fear, the judgment, 
and we do this through love, then love will also cast out all of the other fears. It'll begin to displace it. The more we love, the less we will fear. It's a love that knows about life. It's a, it's a love that knows God personally and relationally. A love that sees God at work in this world. It sees His love in the light of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's a love that sees the sufferings of the cross. It sees and understands the pain and agony of our Savior. And yet His glorious resurrection. It interprets all of life and knowledge through that hermeneutic. It keeps everything together. It does not compartmentalize out and put detention between God's goodness and God's sovereignty or God's transcendence and His eminence. It keeps it all in the tapestry of who God is. This is what drove Paul and his Life and his ministry, which was characterized by suffering. And you say, well, why would he live that way? How could he live this way? Because he loved God. And so much did he love God. He loved God's people. And he loved the Gentiles for whom the gospel also was. So much love did he have for his own people who were rejecting the gospel. He makes this astounding statement in Romans chapter 9, I believe it was, maybe 10. He says this in Acts 20, But none of these things do move me, nor do I count my life dear unto myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. You notice how Paul put that? I do not count my life as dear to myself, but that I might run the race with joy. Not with fear. With sadness. No, with joy. The only way you can live this way is already seeing the light of glory and the new heavens and the new broadcasting back, just kind of shining out of the corridors of the fulfillment of the future, spreading over and back into, this is kind of back to the, from the future. And this is how Paul lived. And this is why he did what he did. This is why he was shipwrecked all those times and why he was beaten with the scourge 39 times, several times, four maybe. Why he was beaten and bruised and he got himself up back up and he went right back into the synagogue. Why he was always going right into the thick of things. When he would go into these Roman cities and he says, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. When he would go into the synagogue and say, Jesus is the risen Messiah. Why did he do this? And aren't we thankful he did these are words of a man who really knew God, who really knew how things were, and he could see things quite beyond the immediate circumstances. And he, like others, could see the glory that lived before them, like Abraham and like Paul and David. And like all of the others on whose shoulders we stand, who've given their lives for the great gospel of Jesus Christ, living in that radiating glory, just spilling over out of the future and into our present. And it's that when Stephen is being stoned and pummeled with stones, he was living there and saw things that natural eyes could not see as he looked up and saw Jesus. That's why I believe in John chapter 8, when you love God this much, you will not see death, is how the scripture puts it. You will not see it. See, love is what casts out fear. And the more mature that love becomes in us, the more confidence and assurance one has, no matter what is going on around him. So we come to this final application in verse 20 through 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God who he has not seen? 
And this is the commandment we have from him. He who loves God must love his brother also. He can command this because it is that which is abiding in us through the Spirit of God. It is really God's love that is resonant in our bodies through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit that then works its way out through these hands and these feet and this mouth and this body. This is the embodiment that then takes this and works it out in community and in covenant to God as it expresses itself here with one another. To love God can be just an abstract goo that makes no application, but when he puts it down to other embodiment, sickness and challenges and someone who's struggling, Because we, we know and we learn and we understand by loving. That's the epistemology. We see God's world and what he's doing in life here by loving. The more we love God, the less we fear. The more confidence we have even in the day of judgment. See, that's where it's going, folks. That's the telos of love, so that we can have boldness in the day of judgment. If you have boldness in the day of judgment, there's not anything else you can't be bold in the face of. We love our neighbor. We express this love. We live this love out. And by loving God, we love God by loving our neighbor. And you will see that The most selfish people in this world are the least loving people. And they also become the most fearful. Did you get that? The most selfish people are the least loving. And they will become the most fearful. Individualism about self-love. Self-love breeds fear. That's why this covenantal aspect of life, we've got to get used to it. We've got to embrace it. We've got to start breathing new kinds of air and atmosphere in our covenantal faithfulness with our Father and with each other. Because that's what fosters a love and that's which dispels fears. And it produces a supernatural confidence. In a day when the world is fearful and perplexed in how to respond, when people who do not know Christ and all are about self-preservation, this is a time for the church to love our neighbor. This is a time to begin thinking about loosening up our busyness to make time for people. I can't tell you how many times I've heard in the past several months and part of the way I'm hearing it is because I am saying it. I'm hearing myself too busy, too busy, too busy. And this right now is a time to begin thinking a little proactively to adjust some of your busyness and to begin to extract yourself from it so that you can have time and prepare to love someone who's going to be in greater need than yourself. This is a wake-up call. This is a recalibration time. This is a reset for us. The pandemic that has been going on around us is thankfully not near as life-threatening as the bubonic plague, the other plagues that we've known through church history. And yet this will test our love and our fortitude. The church in the past, I want to help keep us in perspective here. Historians have suggested that the terrible Antonian plague of the second century, which might have killed off a quarter of the Roman Empire, we're talking 25%. Led to the spread of Christianity. This preceded the time of its Romans' final implosion. And when Rome did finally implode, what came up 
to rise, to fill the vacuum of that was the church. As Christians cared for the sick and offered a spiritual model where the plagues were not the work of an angry, capricious deities, but it was the product of a broken creation in revolt against a loving God, they could bring some interpretation to light to show that this was our doing, but there's an answer for it in the risen Christ. The plague of Cyprian, because it was named after that bishop who gave some colorful accounts of that disease in his sermons, helped set off a crisis in the third century in the Roman world. But it also did something else. It triggered growth, an explosive growth of Christianity. Cyprian's sermons told Christians not to grieve for the plague victims who are already in heaven, but to redouble their efforts to care for the living. And his fellow bishop, Dionysius described Christians as heedless of danger, took charge of the sick, attending to their very need. It was a, year, a century later that the pagan Emperor Julian would complain bitterly of how those Christians would care even for the non-Christians who were sick. It has been researched and believed that the death rate in that time in those cities where there were Christian communities was about half of that in other cities that had them not. There is a preservation, not only of God's people, but through God's people where they serve. In 1527, the bubonic plague hit. It hit Wittenberg. Luther was alive and ministering. And he refused calls to flee the city and to protect himself, but rather he stayed and he ministered to the sick. It did cost him the life of his daughter Elizabeth, but it produced a track which some of you have perhaps read recently, quote, whether Christians should flee the plague. That was an outcome of this situation. And there he articulates the response of the Christian in the time of the plague. He says, we die at our post. Christian doctors cannot abandon their hospitals. Christian governors cannot flee their districts. Christian pastors cannot abandon their congregations. The plague does not dissolve our duties. It turns them into crosses on which we must prepare to die. See, that kind of way of thinking is not common today, even among churches and Christian people. I will contend that the post-modern, enlightened age of reasoning kind of thinking has led the church to think way too much like the world. Too much about preserving our own lives and our individualistic perspective at the expense of others. And this particular, much lighter affliction will provide great opportunities for us to be looking for to serve and to love our neighbor. I want you to think about just an easy example. You're, you're at the grocery store. <gasps> There's one case of toilet paper left. And you make a run for it. And you're making a run and you get it just in time. And behind you, you hear a little boy's voice says, Mom, that was the last one and we're all out. How do you respond to that? You have to be in tune with what's going on, a situational awareness of those around you and perhaps those who need something a whole lot more than you do. That's the small end of the spectrum. We have a community that we can call on and, and the depth of this community which we can rely upon for helping each other meet needs like this, but not only meeting our, our needs, but when we meet our needs this way, we have greater ability to minister to those that don't have a community and do not know Jesus and do not have what we have. 
There are major ways that could provide opportunities, of which I don't know yet, but as you pray for them and as you look for them and as you're, they're around you and they may come, we do need to be praying for our world and for our healthcare workers and for the sick. We need to be helpers in ways that we can help physically. We need to comfort those who are sick. We need to love our neighbor. And let me tell you what, it's not just a duty. That's not, you, you will completely miss it. This is knowing God more. This is how you know more about God. This is part of the hermeneutic and part of the epistemology of learning God is by serving. And yet when you do, you're going to see him more clearly. You're going to become less fearful in the very midst of what otherwise may overwhelm you in fear. So our response is, is not merely not to fear. Our response is to love, which will displace the fear that we otherwise can't do ourselves. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. He loved you. He loved me. He sacrificed the greatest sacrifice. He shed his blood. He gave his life in agony. But it was through the joy that was set before him, he endured the shameful death of the cross. His life was prophesied by the prophets. It was a, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. There was a heavy burden laid upon him all the days of his life. He did not have quite the same life as other child and, and boyhood and, and manhood. There was a burden. He was carrying humanity upon his shoulders from his birth. And the government was upon his shoulder. And a new race of which he was the federal head was counting on him. To live that righteous and perfect life, fulfilling the love of God and obeying Him perfectly. And He's called us to that very life as well. And as His vice regents in this world, we now can affect this world in a profound way as we live out the love of Christ to our neighbor. Men, that's going to start at home today. You love your wives as Christ loved the church. Women, you love your husbands and love your children. Children, love your parents. This first works out at home. And then you love the people behind you and next to you. And you love them in tangible ways and sacrificial ways. And getting yourself out of the way and serving your neighbor right here. If you haven't done that. There's any kind of distance between you, any kind of relational tension. You lean into that and take care of that and repent of your sins for harboring that. And come to the love of Christ, which forgives. And then live this thing out to those who are on the side of the road tomorrow, to those who are trying to find toilet paper, to those who are living in the, the, the frenzy of the fearful life that is buzzing around, which will get worse before it gets better. But that's not something you fear. You're just looking for the opportunities. You're looking for the opportunities. Because the more you love, the less you fear. Christ has set this before us today to show us how we are to respond to this coronavirus. But hoping that when this is all behind us, we don't forget these lessons and put them into our hearts learning as we apply them to our everyday life. Our gracious Father, teach us in our hearts. Teach us deeply to love you sincerely, without hypocrisy. To saturate ourselves so much in your word and in prayer. That the vision that you put before us, the light begins to spill out of the, the future consummation and drive us today to taste of it, 
even through suffering. As we come to your table, we pray that you would break through into our lives today in a great encouraging way to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our love, to strengthen our hope. The greatest of these three is love. And so we pray, Father, that you would teach us with your Son's love and with the Spirit that gratitude and praise and thanksgiving would just spill over from our hearts that are full and that it would give you honor and praise and glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.